for sure. Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for American Heritage Program. My name is Chris Mihalik. Today's story is found online at AmericanHeritage.com. These are No Ordinary Times by Adam Hothschild. We will continue a story we started last week. Between 1917 and 1921, there was also, to be sure, some violence from the left. Workers attacked strikebreakers with fists, knives, and bricks. Anarchists planted bombs, killing several dozen people. For many other acts of violence, however, it is unclear who was responsible. The very afternoon before those wobblies were arrested, for example, a 300-foot railroad bridge not far from Tulsa caught fire. The cause of the flames has not been discovered, reported the Tulsa Democrat, but it is thought to have been a part of IWW plot. The paper cited no evidence, however, and in this period, no prosecutor ever convicted an Oklahoma wobbly of an act of political violence. The greatest ferocity by far came from federal and state governments, businesses, and vigilantes allied with them, and it was a fact that at the very highest level, the corporate lawyer, Elihu Root, was a former Secretary of War, Secretary of State, and Senator from New York. In August 1917, he had just returned from a trip abroad as a special emissary for President Wilson. There, were, there are men walking about the streets of this city tonight who ought to be taken out at sunrise tomorrow and shot for treason, he told the New York City audience. There are some newspapers published in this city every day, the editors of which deserve conviction and execution. Such fierceness echoed across the country. Who, for instance, led the mob that tarred and feathered those Tulsa Wobblies? Two men, the city's police chief, Ed Lucas, and W. Tate Brady, one of its most prominent business figures. Brady's holdings included a lumberyard, a coal mine, commercial real estate, and the first hotel in town with baths. The IWW office, in fact, was on West Brady Street. Just a few days before the arrest, the volatile Brady, no stranger to the use of force, had attacked and beaten up a rival property owner who had rented that space to the IWW. The son of a Confederate veteran, Brady had moved to Oklahoma when white settlers were still stocking out land in what was then Indian Territory. Later, he would join the Ku Klux Klan and, with his business profits, built a mansion modeled on the Virginia home of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. As the Red Scare subsided, a warning of a more brutal sort was given to black Americans who had hoped for a better life by leaving the Deep South. The Wilson administration had done virtually nothing to prosecute members of the white mobs who killed hundreds in the Red Summer of 1919, and such stark impunity bred more violence. One of the most horrific outbreaks came two years later in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This was the same city where, in 1917, those 16 wobblies had been whipped, tarred, and feathered. What unfolded now, however, was infinitely worse. 
The fateful chain of events began on March, on May 30, 1921, with the rumor, probably spurious, that a black man had threatened a white woman in an office building's elevator. Street fighting broke out, and a white man was killed. Over the following two days, white mobs, including many veterans, roamed the city streets, looting black homes and businesses. They set scores of buildings on fire, sometimes from the top down by taking to the air in small plants to drop homemade incendiary bombs. Signs of black economic success have often provoked white resentment, and Tulsa had an unusually large black business district, sometimes called Black Wall Street, that included shops, restaurants, hotels, and lawyers and doctor's offices. More than 1,400 businesses and homes covering 35 blocks were left in charred, smoking ruins. A, photo a photograph W.E.B. Dubois published in the crisis looked like one of a city leveled to rubble by carpet bombing. Some 8,000 people, almost all black, were rendered homeless. The National Guard took 4,000 blacks into custody, holding many for up to eight days. No whites were arrested. There was no accurate death count, but scholars now believe that some 300 people were killed, almost all of them black. Bolshevik propaganda, reported the Los Angeles Times, was the principal cause of the race riot. Two weeks after what he called the late Negro uprising, Tulsa's mayor announced that everything is quiet in our city. This menace has been fully conquered. He promoted a plan for turning parts of the ruins into an industrial park and new railway terminal to separate white and black Tulsa. Blacks burnt out of their homes would be allowed to rebuild farther north and east. Zoning regulations were changed accordingly. That mayor, incidentally, was T.D. Evans, the same man who was a judge four years earlier, had found the arrested Wobblies guilty because these are no ordinary times. Meanwhile, not just in the South, but across the country, crosses flamed in the night as the Ku Klux Klan enjoyed a resurgence, reaching an estimated 4 million members by 1924. Many Klansmen, including the leading strategists of the group's rebirth, Imperial Wizard William Simmons, were former members of the American Protective League. On Memorial Day in 1927, a march of some 1,000 Klansmen through the New York City borough of Queens turned into a brawl with the police. Several people wearing Ku Klan hoods were arrested, one of them a young real estate developer named Fred Trump. Nine years later, his son, with similar feelings about people of color, would enter the White House. During Donald Trump's presidency, the forces that had blighted the America of a century earlier would be dramatically visible yet again, rage against immigrants and refugees, racism, red-baiting, fear of subversive ideas in schools, and some more. And, of course, behind all of them is the appeal of simple solutions, deport aliens, forbid critical journalism, lock people up, blame everything on those of different color or religion. All those impulses have long been with us. Other presidents, both Republican and Democrat, have made dog-whistle appeals on the issue of race. 
Vigilante superpatriots, sometimes violent, have cropped up again and again since the American Protective League prowled the streets looking for draft dodgers. Just as veterans of the Philippine War appeared in the political violence that surged after 1917, so veterans of later Asian counter-guerrilla wars in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan have helped fill the ranks of new camouflage-clad armed militia groups. Although the long battle between business and organized labor rarely again would become as violent as it was more than a century ago, it has not disappeared. With smooth-talking, social media-savvy, union avoidance consultants replacing National Guard troops and private detectives, that struggle continues to the present day. America's version of democracy is far from perfect, and every generation or two we learn anew just how fragile it can be. Almost all the tensions that roiled the country during and after the First World War still linger today. It may be a sudden event that kindles them into flame, as did the nation's entry into that war, followed by the Russian Revolution, or it may be gradually mounting pressures. Some of those pressures are already here, such as the increasingly northward flow of refugees fleeing global warming. To keep these dark forces from overwhelming American society once again will require a lot from us. Knowledge of our history, for one thing, so we can better see the danger signals and the first drumbeats of demagoguery. Brave men and women, both inside and outside the government, like those who spoke the truth and stuck to their principles more than a hundred years ago. A more equitable distribution of wealth, so that there will not be tens of millions of people economically losing ground and looking for scapegoats to blame. A mass media far less craven to those in power than it was from 1917 to 21, and above all, a vigilant respect for civil rights and constitutional safeguards to save ourselves from ever slipping back into the darkness again. The Greatest Upset in World Cup History by Bruce Watson Belo Horizonte, Brazil, June 29, 1950 no eyes of an eager world focused on the soccer squads as they took the pitch that afternoon. But to 30,000 onlookers in this Brazilian mining city, the game looked like a rout. The British were the kings of football, 3-1 to favorites to win the 1950 World Cup and expected to beat the U.S. 500-1 to odds by six goals or more. Hadn't the Americans lost recently matches by 4-0, 5-zip, and 11 to nothing? Weren't they a ragtag band, uh, band of amateurs? Forward Walter Barr taught high school in Philadelphia. Forward Joe Gattins was a dishwasher in Manhattan. The team also included a mailman, a machinist, and a few factory workers. Goldie Frank Borgie, nicknamed the six-goal wonder for the average score against him, drove a hearse for a funeral home. We were playground players, one recalled in the game of their lives, like the kids you see today shooting baskets in any park. But there was a scrappiness about the Americans noticed by one reporter. The Americans came strolling into the dressing room in Belo Horizonte, surely the strangest team ever at a World Cup. Some were Stetsons, some smoked big cigars, and some were still in the happy early stages of hangover. 
In the game's first 12 minutes, England had six shots on goal, two hit the posts, one sailed inches over the crossbar. Frank Borgi saved others with a dive, a leap, a prayer. Then the Americans brought the ball upfield and took their own shot. England's goalie gobbled up, but the fans came alive, roaring for the Americans. A minute later, Borgi made another diving save, and another. Whether you call it football or soccer, it is the world's game, the beautiful game. The grace, the footwork, the endurance endeared it to every country except America. In 1950, no one in America played soccer. There was no MLS, no youth soccer, few college teams. So, when the American squad somehow qualified for the cup, the first since 1938 due to World War II, no one cared. The lone American journalist among 400 covering the cup had paid his own way to Brazil. The exception came in immigrant cities, especially in St. Louis. There, tightly knit enclaves, German in Lushtown, Irish in Docktown, Italians on Dago Hill, played their hearts out. You played for the neighborhood, you played for the hill, Goldie Frank Borgia remembered, and because it was fun. To the amazement of the crowd, the Americans, four Italians, two Portuguese, one Belgian, an Irish, German, Haitian, and a Scot, kept the score at zip-zip past the 30-minute mark. And then, well, do you believe in miracles? In the 38th minute, the high school teacher took a throw in at midfield, dribbled 20 yards, then launched a looping pass into the penalty box. The ball looked easy to grab, but at the last second, the dishwasher hurled himself headfirst as if he thought he could fly, the man recalled. The ball glanced off Gatian's head and into the net. The roar was deafening. Fathers shielded son from the noise. The referee plucked his ears. Holy Christ, the mailman told the machinist. I think we just woke them up. Hold on to your hat, Joe. All hell's gonna break loose now. The score remained one zip into halftime. Back on the field, England pressed again and again. The U.S. had another shot at that that got the crowd chanting, May um, may um, one more. But the amateurs looked weary. We didn't have the conditioning those guys had, the mailman remembered. We were good for maybe 20, 25 minutes before we started to tire. Five days earlier, the U.S. had let Spain one zip, only to lose three to one. No substitutions were allowed in soccer back then, and everyone expected another fade-out, everyone except the playground players. From the 80th minute, England dominated, shot after shot, wide by inches, blocked by a dive, a leap, a prayer, a breakaway run, tackled from behind. A ball kept off the goal line by inches. When the whistle blew, Walter Barr caught the ball and clutched it to his chest. The amateurs had won. Thousands surged onto the field, lifting the Americans frolicking as only World Cup fans can. Five days later, the U.S. lost to Chile 5-2. to two. When players flew home, no one met them at airports. The upset had made news only in St. Louis. The New York Times got the report, thought it was a hoax, and buried it. The U.S. did not return to the World Cup until 1990. By then, upstart youth leagues and college programs brought the American team a grudging respect in the world's game. 
All those young men from a summer afternoon in 1950 are gone now. But every four years, someone remembers the greatest upset in World Cup history when America's amateurs not only beat the kings of football, but reminded them why we play games, after all. The way it is today, Fran Borgie remembered, you see those guys out there, they got 20, 30 soccer balls, they're all serious, they're doing their fancy drills, their organized calisthenics. Hard to believe they're having much fun. Us, we were lucky if we had one good ball. The calisthenics? I'd go get in the goal mouth, pick up a few rocks, shake them around a little to loosen up, and I'd be, okay, I'm ready, let's go. The Quiet Monkey by Richard Levick The late Michael Nesmith, cerebral member of the monkeys, embodied youth and repressed. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart for the monkeys. The older I get, it seems, the more I choke up. In the recent passing of Michael Nesmith, songwriter, producer, and a quiet member of the musical group The Monkees definitely filled me with emotion. The Monkees debuted on NBC in 1966 when Nesmith, Peter Tork, Mickey Dolenz, and David Jones beat out 433 other aspiring actors, musicians, answering an advertisement in The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety. Madness, auditions, folk and roll musicians, singers for acting roles in new TV series, running parts for four insane boys ages 17 to 21, one-spirited Ben Franks types, have courage to work, must come down for an interview. After seeing the Beatles film, A Hard Day's Night, Hollywood executives Bart Rafelson and Bert Schneider were looking for the next version of Beatlemania, though they wanted a band far more controllable than the brilliant and enigmatic Beatles and much more PG than the bad boy Rolling Stones. They got half of what they wanted with the Monkees, outselling the combined sales of the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and the Rolling Stones' Their Satanic Majesty's Request in 1967. What they didn't get was control. With the Monkees, all four improved enough to play live concerts by December 1966. They went on tour, famously having Jimi Hendrix open for them for a brief period until it was clear that the Monkees' young fans could not appreciate this psychedelic rock god as the History Channel memorialized that ill-fated tour. Michael Nesmith was a cerebral one who inspired MTV and the Eagles and wrote a number of generation-defining country rock hits, including Different Drum, made famous by Linda Ronsett, and the Stone Ponies. With Michael's passing, three of the monkeys are now gone, and only Mickey Dolenz remains. Perhaps one of the most important things the monkeys achieved, beyond 20 top 100 pop hits, is that they made the British invasion of rock music safer and more palatable for a generation of parents not yet comfortable with what their kids were listening to. As with so many of my peers, I was saddened by Michael's passing. 
for he represented and repressed youth, and in a blink, he was the old man in Neil Sung's song by the same name. For the first half of our lives, we are collecting things. In the second half, it is about evanescence, the slow fading away into nothingness, as with the monkeys. I thought love was only true in fairy tales, meant for someone else, but not for me. Love was out to get me, that's the way it seemed. Disappointment haunted by all my dreams. I'm a believer, written by Neil Diamond for the monkeys. Beyond Slavery's Shadow, review, See How Free Blacks Survived and Fought Back, by James Bearsell. Black and white children as schoolmates, a black sergeant assigned to command over 70 mostly white soldiers, black clergymen leading mixed-race congregations, skilled black craftsmen highly respected by white members of their communities. Do these citations sound like examples of the progress America has made in overcoming racism? They're actually examples of life in the early 19th century South. If critics and admirers of the Old South agree on one thing, it's that Civil War era attitudes toward slavery and race were, were grounded in long-standing tradition. Admirers claim that that tradition blinded otherwise decent people. Critics see evidence of a thoroughly corrupt society. Shadow unmasks a different reality. Slavery and racism existed from early days in colonial America, but a certain fluidity characterized these phenomena for over two centuries before attitudes hardened. At first, slaves could own property, sometimes earning enough by hiring themselves to buy their freedom. Some free blacks were aristocrats, even slave owners. Whites commonly accepted free blacks of their own class as at least more or less equals. Believers in racial superiority didn't necessarily treat that construct as a white, non-white issue. Some persons of Anglo-Saxon ancestry considered themselves superior to white people from other origins. Such a mix of attitudes typified the Revolutionary Era and the Republic's early days. Many on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line favored gradually ending slavery. Newer extreme views gained credence among the Southerners in the 1820s. Scientific racism replaced unthinking prejudice with adherents claiming to be able to perceive a strict biological hierarchy among races. This scientific mode of analysis would affect the status of people with one black great-grandparent in ways the others, the older view, never did. Slavery, slavery came to be seen as a great good, not merely acceptable or a way to avoid something worse. So while abolitionism bloomed and grew in the North, the South began codifying the slave system in terms stricter than ever while moving toward a subjugation of the region's 250,000 free black residents that culminated in Jim Crow. Shadow tells how these free southern blacks survived and fought back, aided by white neighbors, opposed to the new policies. This fascinating story shows that early America was made was more benign and the antebellum South more sinister than generally realized.
This was a review of the book Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South by Warren Eugene Miltier Jr. Get it on Amazon. And we'll finish with this date in history. On February 25, 1964, 22-year-old Cassius Clay shocks the odds makers by dethroning world heavyweight boxing champ Sonny Liston in a seventh round technical knockout. The dreaded Liston, who had twice demolished former champ Floyd Patterson in one round, was an 8-1 favorite. However, Clay's predicted, predicted victory, boasting that he would float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and knock out Liston in the eighth round. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.